Steve and I investigate Born of the Gods for Vintage on episode 33 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 33 of So Many Insane Plays, in which Steve and I review Born of the Gods, new cards and mechanics, as well as our Theros report card. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. By way of announcements this episode, I will be appearing on the Pauper to the People podcast in February to discuss Vintage and Pauper and Commons and those two formats and things that they have in common, pun intended. I don't know which episode it'll be, but I will certainly be tweeting about it, and in our next episode I can let you know which episode number it is. Steve, do you have some article updates for us? I'm still grinding away at the third edition of my Gush book. I finished chapter 7 of 12. I'm in 8 right now, and I'm going to try and really work my hardest to get that finished by the end of February, and hopefully out by spring. Cool. It's going to be a lot longer. I mean, the last chapter I just finished was 10 pages in the last edition. It's now 44 pages. (laughs) But that's because of cards like Mental Misstep and Flusterstorm, which didn't exist when I published the last edition of the book. Yeah, Mental Misstep alone, uh, chapters and chapters of content. (laughs) Yeah. Also, Steve, we do have another upcoming Team Serious Open. It is March 8, and we'll have the link in the show notes to the Manadrain announcement. But this one is in Columbus again. The last one was in Columbus. Sometimes they alternate Columbus and Sandusky. This one's in Columbus again. The last one, we had a huge turnout. It was the largest, uh, t- it was the largest vintage tournament that had been in Ohio for years. It was amazing. And I assume that the next one will be just about as good. So come on out and play yeah. some proxy vintage. It's great. Go go to it. Um, there's also uh, another vintage tournament, Eudaimonia in Berkeley, around the same time. I'm not sure whether it's March 1st or March 2nd. The TO told me it was going to be March 2nd, but the, the website announcement right now says March 1st. But it'll be at 1 p.m. on either March 1st or March 2nd. <laughs> There'll be $25 entry fee, and they'll allow up to 15 proxies. But check out the Eudaimonia website to be sure, or check out the Manadrain, and I'll post the official announcement. Vintage in Berkeley, California, at the beginning of March. Be there. Steve, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up, and it's not really an announcement, so to speak, but I asked one Nick Koss about, I'm sorry, about Eternal Weekend, about specifically about how Watsi felt about the inaugural Eternal Weekend in Philly this last year, and, and he told me that they were very happy with the results. Now, he doesn't have anything to announce yet, as far as I've seen, but they were very pleased with the results, and you and I have both said that uh, the turnout and the, the whole vibe of the thing and the way it was run all point to good things. So it was good to hear him say that they were pleased with what came out of that weekend, and I think that only bodes well for the future. Yeah, I fully expect that Eternal Weekend will be back this year. It's just a matter of when. I have a big family trip to Europe around the time of Eternal Weekend last year, so... 
hopefully I can I can uh, it'll fall on the right weekend and that won't be a problem. <laughs> it would be a real shame if you weren't able to make it. I certainly hope that you can. And I hope that those of our listeners that did make it last year could make it again. And I hope that even more can, because after hearing our assessment of it and many other people in the community, I hope that everyone knows that it was a great time. So, The other thing that I look forward to is the NYSE Open number two. I'd like to know when that's going to be. So if Nick Detweiler's out there listening, let us know. Definitely. And we'll give more information on both of those as we know more. Steve, another interesting topic that has come up lately is this issue of counterfeit cards vis-a-vis new cards showing up from China. Chinese counterfeits. (laughs) And also the new card face that was recently spoiled for later this year by by Wizards, showing not only that, but the Waste Not card from You Make the Card. All kinds of things came out this week, but I think that counterfeit issue really has some interesting impacts for the future of vintage. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've talked about it a number of times about Magic Online and Vintage coming to Magic Online. We've also talked about the reserved list in a number of contexts and what it means for the format and how limiting it is. And I genuinely feel as though the anti-counterfeiting uh, measures that Watsi is now implementing actually speak to a way they can genuinely make an end around the reserved list. Do you follow me here? Uh, I'm not. Explain. Because the primary reason for th- that the reserved list is still in place is... To preserve the value of um, collectability. The collectability, but more so to preserve the public perception of the collectability or wizard's word on their commitment to collectors. Mm-hmm. But the counterfeiting issue provides an interesting spin to that whole argument and turns it on a different axis. Because if cards that are valuable become counterfeited and that counterfeiting goes unchecked, then those cards lose value. If there's a dramatic influx of, say, counterfeit well, dual lands. Yeah, it, depends, it depends, of course, on the quality. I mean, counterfeit dollar bills don't necessarily, they aren't substitutes for dollar bills if people look at them closely. Granted, and I am speaking only in hypotheticals here, but this is but this is something that Watsi needs to guard against right. and Hasbro needs to guard against. If such a thing were to happen, and there is a threat of that at least, then that is a way in which their inaction regarding the reserved list actually ultimately hurts the customer more. So let's just explain what some of the, what's going on to our listeners. Apparently, there is a manufacturer in China that is refining a process for printing magic cards. And in particular, they're printing cards like Tundra and Tarmogoyf, <laughs> and then having them shipped to the United States, and they're appearing in the United States. At the moment, there are subtle variations that allow people who are knowledgeable about the differences to identify them as counterfeits. But someone who is maybe not knowledgeable or not looking closely might not be able to tell the difference. So, or sales occurring over, over the internet. Or sales over the internet more recently. Um, and, you know, China is a big country. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things like that in a number of different industries that are occurring with China. Um, and it's not clear to the extent to which, you know, U.S. copyright law or trademark law will be able to protect, you know, Hasbro from counterfeit magic cards, at least in the short run. You know, there could be some, you know, expensive international litigation and pressure um, from the U.S. government. But um, assuming that a non-trivial number of 
hell, dual lands or moxen or power cards come to the United States that look sufficiently close. The, the key thing is, that here's, here's an important thing. The standard for play for what we mean by supply for counterfeit does not have to be perfect, right? When you take a, a, a dollar bill and you buy a hot dog, the person isn't taking that little light and checking it necessarily. Um, <laughs> but the standard for playability, you know, how many judges are going to take your, your card out of the sleeve and, or in some cases, Both the sleeves. Yeah, I was going to say all three sleeves in some cases, <laughs> um, and, you know, inspecting them for small variations to see if it might be counterfeit. Um, it seems possible that in a lot of contexts, people could get away within legacy or especially local legacy and vintage tournaments playing with these counterfeit cards. And that that would therefore make them tournament substitutes or substitutes for the use to which they matter the most. And I agree with you, and I think a lot of people are on record in agreeing that there's a number of uh, axes to this issue, but judges are not expected to be experts in identifying counterfeits, for one. If one is brought to their attention, they're meant to treat it like a proxy. It's it's an illegal card, and you're meant to replace it. It's the penalty aside from intentional cheating, which is a separate topic. But the penalty for just discovering a a counterfeit is not, not stiff. And so that low penalty combined with ease of access, combined with relative effectiveness at replacing real cards means that it's almost certain that these these counterfeits, if they get into the player community, will find a home yeah. and be used. And it's also um, unless these things are put, you know, put um, have a curb put on them, it seems likely that the counterfeiting process will become more refined as the manufacturers in China um, improve their their process and and um, eliminate a lot of the errors and discrepancies. So the question, Definitely. this seems like it's going to probably impact legacy pretty pretty soon, pretty quickly if it hasn't already. But uh, w- what happens when you discover that someone has a counterfeit tundra? And, and how do you prove that they knew that? You know, they could simply say, I had no idea. I bought it from my friend. You know, what do you do? <laughs> and judges are expert in in-game situations, as well as some things that hover around in-game situations like player behavior and discovering the true the truth of a, a matter that involved a game. Judges are not experts in card veracity, nor in your acquisition of cards from weeks or months well, or years prior. To be so. Exactly, exactly. So that's why I say the relatively minor penalty for discovering counterfeits is going to contribute to the likelihood that they will see play. And all of this obviously threatens the bottom line of Hasbro. Not so much with uh, power, with Moxin and and Dual Lands, but definitely with cards like Tarmogoyf. These cards are marquee selling points for major product releases, and counterfeit Tarmogoyfs and counterfeit Dark Confidants and the like really speak to their bottom line. This is something we've talked about for years, and I've always... Yeah. I've always actually just wondered if there has been a manufacturer who's been able to produce basically identical or near identical counterfeits, and no one has really been able to know about it. There's no way of knowing. And now but, this actually seems to be manifesting. I want to go back, though, to the impact on vintage, because I don't think you've quite followed my whole train of thought here. And that is, this hurts uh, Wizards' bottom line when it comes to in-print cards that are marquees for sets, driving sales. That's, that much is clear. Right. It's clear that they already take it seriously because they've already taken proactive measures. Right. These these foil stamps that they're going to be releasing. But those aren't those aren't retroactive measures. Right. These it's proactive measures and it's a tacit identification that the issue is real, and that it's important to them. But when it comes to the reserved list, 
Steve, you've done analysis in the past on the value of the median card in the reserved list. Remind our listeners what it was. 99 cents. There you go. Now, that was a few years ago, and it's probably probably a couple more cents than that now. (laughs) But we're talking about the median here. Yes, the Moxon and Lotus may have gone up a little bit. Plenty of other cards at the other end of the spectrum have gone nowhere. The point of the reserved list is not to guarantee the value of those cards anymore. Values of cards are, as Steve, you've written on this, and values of cards are determined by tons of factors, just innumerable factors. And the reserved aspect of them only speaks to one aspect of it, the reprinting of them, the quantity. It speaks to supply. It doesn't speak to demand. Yep. And demand can be manipulated in magical terms a number of ways. But the point is, is if the supply is negatively affected by the counterfeit issue, then that can dramatically impact the value of said cards. If counterfeits become common enough that consumer loyalty is negatively impacted with regard to safe... Hold on, you're using terms like negative, and it's not clear what those mean. Let me get to the end of that. Let me get to the end of that. If counterfeits become common enough that user confidence in... I'm sorry, that customer confidence in certain reserved cards is impacted such that the value drops then the reserved list, after a certain threshold, becomes a negative for the customer. The fact that there's more counterfeits entering the market than there was original supply, potentially, means that the fact that Wizards won't print them means that the only ways that players can reliably get them is to get counterfeits. The collectors get punished. The people with originals get punished. At such a point, this is all hypothetical, but it's feasible that at such a point, the reserved list will actually be counterintuitive and working against its stated goal of customer confidence. It is at that point that Wizards would be incentivized and their customers, many of them, would actually receive additional value from them saying, look, here's a real Tundra. It's got a foil stamp and everything. I'm I'm just positing that if the counterfeit issue goes far enough down the rabbit hole, that the reserved process will mean that the confidence in the veracity of a Black Lotus is so low <laughs> that they start to lose value, at which point the fact that they're reserved basically damns that card to continually lose There's value. There's a lot of assumptions in your logic there. Um, I think one thing that, that I, I think goes to my earlier question of what you mean by negatively, you know, these descriptors, you could imagine that an influx of counterfeit cards lowers the price of certain cards, um, for not just because a player's lowered confidence in the reality of the card, but because you actually increase supply, which is a way to lower price. If you sure. increase su- supply and lower price, you could actually lower the barriers to entry to some of these formats. Like Underground Sea, I think, on Star City Games is almost at $250 now. If that's, yep. if that's the case, that makes le- legacy really prohibitively expensive. If you lower the, the, the barrier to entry, you could actually increase demand for for those cards, and, and therefore, you, or at least you'd have a shift um, along the demand curve, um, you could thereby, um, you know, actually have greater interest in the format. So I, I don't know that that's necessarily all negative for the format. Yeah, and I don't want to spin the whole issue as being all negative from a player's perspective, but from a Hasbro perspective, right. but the other, it's pretty firmly in the negative trend. The other thing, though, <laughs> that I think is important in your logic is, is one of your assumptions is that um, that customer confidence is diminished simply by um, 
the presence of counterfeits, but that undermines the emphasis of the reserve list on the promise aspect and who that promise comes from. Um, you know, the the reserve list doesn't say anywhere that other companies can't make can't can't print those the cards on the reserve list, right? Yep. It's copyright law yep. that says that. Um, yep. And and when copyright expires, the reserve list will pres- presumably still apply to Hasbro. It just won't apply to whoever else wants to make those cards. <laughs> <laughs> the reserve list doesn't say a lot of things. Yeah. Which uh, people who studied the topic before, it, it's pretty clear to them. And that's why I wanted to be clear and say that Hasbro has not committed to a card retaining its value. Right. They've just committed to the fact that we won't print these. And the the original basically assumption or the, the, the cause for it was cards losing value. But the policy itself doesn't promise that at all. Right. And what I'm saying is, is that the only reason they've doubled down on the reserved list is the customer confidence issue. And it's a select, it's a niche customer. It's it's the, the collectors, the people that have the cards or the people that have a high quantity of them such that the value becomes an issue. It's those people that are being catered to. So it is implicitly about value and it is explicitly not about value, <laughs> which makes the issue very muddy. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that beyond a certain threshold, the fact that they're reserved could actually flip the issue 180 degrees and cause the people they're trying to protect more pain by sticking to their guns and not reprinting because they could devalue the commodity to the point where there's no point in having the original. Now, again, that the threshold we're far away from. But what I'm getting at is they have acknowledged it with the foil printings on the card face. They've acknowledged that they take this issue seriously. Yeah. The fact that we're hearing about it now means that it's been in development for quite a while. I mean, they've known about the issue. They probably knew about it before most of the Twitter public did, and they've taken steps already to to address it. So, what do you? What is your proposed solution? What do you think the course of action, policy course? Well, my it's not so much a proposed solution as an observation of what could happen. There are a lot of things moving along a time a long timeline that suggests. Okay, Vintage on Magic Online is is a big component of it. The Vintage Masters set that they're going to release on Vintage Online, I'm sorry, Magic Online is a component of it in the long term. If the Vintage Masters set is a wild success and the Vintage format is, generally speaking, a success on Magic Online, if card sales, virtual card sales, bear that out, and if Hasbro observes a negative impact from counterfeits, and that negative impact grows in print media, they could take those two pieces of information, those two collections of information, and say, we should be getting the money from this vintage format or these old cards in print and not these counterfeiters. Mm -hmm. At which point they might say, look, the the market for these older cards or these high-value new cards has become muddied. We've addressed the new cards with these foils, right? They can't counterfeit the foils, at least for now. But these old cards sell like hotcakes online. Why wouldn't we print some and sell them? So are you suggesting some sort of like specific abrogation of the reserve list, like a, a redemption program or something? I do not I do not mean to hypothesize about how they would implement it. Just their rationale in taking the reserved list and acknowledging that at some point it becomes harmful to the customer base as a whole. And I think this counterfeit issue combined with potential success of vintage online starts to point in that direction. 
I'm, I'm not saying how they would execute it, that there's a, there are dozens of possible ways they could execute it. But what I'm saying is their impetus for doubling down on the reserved list is their customers. But if the reserved list at some point starts to harm their customers, you have to believe they're going to reconsider. Now, there's plenty of people. I know plenty of people would say, well, it's harming customers right now. Yeah. Okay, that, that's a, granted. It is harming some customers right now already. And, and we've got a lot of sympathetic listeners on the air right now. But after it passes a certain threshold of harming the people it was intended to protect even, you better believe that they're going to reconsider. Well, we will see. So, yeah. so I just think that I, I do not celebrate this counterfeit issue at all. But the fact that they're addressing it also speaks to the fact that they're aware of customer impacts along a lot, great many axes. And it could be that the customer impact of the reserved list comes to bear in a market that's very challenged in the long run. I don't know. This issue we'll be watching closely in the near future. We'll keep our audience informed, that's for sure. It wouldn't be a set review, Steve, if we didn't have our report card from the prior set review. In this case, it's Theros, and it won't be a long report card because we talked about a lot of cards and a lot of mechanics in Theros, but we ultimately only predicted appearances by two cards. I don't think we need to beat around the bush. None of the other cards that we predicted zero appearances of had any top eight appearances. Curse the Swine, Biden the Thassa, Dissolve, Chain to the Rocks, Ashen Rider, Heroes Downfall, Triton, Fortune Hunter, A Crow and Crusader, Anger of the Gods, Miscutter Hydra, Ashiok, Daxos, Psychic Intrusion, Spellheart, Chimera, Steam Augury, all zeros across the board. No surprise. There were two cards that we predicted appearances of, and that's what we'll grade ourselves on this time. Okay. The first is Swan Song. Steve, you predicted three appearances. I predicted one appearance. The actual was 17. <laughs> and nearly all of these appearances were as one or two ofs in Oath decks, which we discussed at great length, and we agreed that that was the natural place for the card if it showed up. But 17 appearances is significantly more activity than you or I expected, and I think it's tied to the good positioning of Oath in the metagame that arose shortly after our set review. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really that much... It's not better than Spellpierce or Flusterstorm, but, as a general matter, but in Oath, it does allow you another more consistent way to trigger the Oath. And our friends and, and teammates, Brian and Paul, who piloted Control-ish Oath decks at the Vintage Championships and then talked about it afterward, they had Swan Song in their sideboard, and Brian commented in his article that he would keep it there. And Paul chimed in in Brian's article after Vintage Champs and said that, that they thought it was not right for the main deck, but it was good in the sideboard. And I believe, especially after the last Team Sirius Open, which had a high, high representation of Oath, that Swan Song probably does have a place at least in the sideboard. And if Oath mirrors become a more commonplace thing, which at least in the Midwest it looks like they might be, yes. then... Swan Song is... Yeah, it's just better than Red Elf Yeah, it's a really great mirror. card in the mirror. And for those of you piloting Oath, I would caution you to think more so about the mirror than you might have, say, six months ago, because I think the mirror is something that will reward preparation. It's been that way for Oath of Druids decks throughout history. The mirror is a very delicate thing and rewards preparation. And now that's the case in Vintage as well. So, Steve, this one goes down as a win for you, albeit sort of a distant win since you were still 14 off the pace but we'll see we'll see how swan song shakes out in the long run the other card that we predicted a non-zero amount for was read the bones that's our three mana scry two, draw two you predicted two appearances i predicted zero the actual was zero 
So Read the Bones did not materialize, uh, even though I'm not saying that it won't ever. I just did not happen since our last set review, and that goes down as a win for me, albeit uh, a minor one. I tested that card in, in, in a Control Oath deck, and it was very good, but um, I never got a chance to play that in a tournament. I think I would have had a good chance as, uh, to top eight with that and make that a one. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I believe it. It's it's a decent card. I don't think it's... It's kind of like Swan Song. It's never going to be a four of, and it's never going to define a deck per se, but it's a good role player. So there was one card that appeared in top eights from Theros. <laughs> That's right. One card, but 17 appearances is respectable. For sure. So our report card this time is a little bit is a little bit odd. We definitely reviewed a dozen cards that had no appearances, and we knew they weren't going to, but we needed to discuss something. So our average is nice and good, but we did have somewhat of a miss on Swan Song, driven, I think, primarily by Oath's position in the metagame, and less so by the change that is brought about by that one card. Right. Let's move on then to Born of the Gods. Some details about Born of the Gods up front. The color distribution is 29 white, black, red cards, 28 blue and green. There are 13 multicolor cards, 3 lands, 6 artifacts. Of 165 total cards, 5 of them are reprints. So 165 cards. 165 cards. And of the mechanics, there are a lot of repeats from Theros. The two new mechanics are Inspired and Tribute. Tell us what Tribute is first. Well, Tribute is the variant of the Punisher mechanic whereby when it, it's on creatures. When said creature comes into play, it, Tribute has a number associated with Tribute 1, 2, 3, etc. If you pay the Tribute cost, I'm sorry, as the creature enters the battlefield, an opponent of your choice may place that many plus 1, plus 1 counters on the creature. That's paying Tribute. So your opponent has the choice, and if they pay it, the creature gets the Tribute value in plus 1, plus 1 counters. If they don't pay it, then they are punished by some other effect. Typically, when the creature enters play, it does something else that's nasty. So, for example, Nessian Demolic, which is a creature beast for 5 mana, it's a 3-3 with Tribute 3. So if you don't pay the Tribute, when it enters the battlefield, if Tribute wasn't paid, destroy target non-creature permanent. So it's a variance of the Punisher mechanic, giving your opponent the choice of facing a larger creature or facing some other negative effect. And The comparison is revealing because uh, that mechanic sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, from a vintage standpoint, the Tribute mechanic basically need not apply. The cheapest creature with it is three mana, and there's only one of those. And most of the triggers around Tribute also involve damage or combat or some such. There are some interesting ones once you get up to 5 and 6 mana, maybe. But this this mechanic, basically, as you put it, need not apply to Vintage. Well, well, I mean, there's two problems with it. The first problem is that the idea of getting plus 1, plus 1 counters is fairly negligible. I mean, less so than it used to be, but that's not that great. And and then the other problem is you actually give your opponent the choice. So choice is always bad, but then to have one of those choices be plus one, plus one counters, that makes it pretty horrid. Yeah, it, it's it's a balance issue for limited and, and standard play. I mean, I went through these tribute creatures and thought, if <laughs> you got the tribute uh, plus one, plus one counters, and you got the tribute effect when you played these, they still wouldn't be playable in Vintage. <laughs> 
How many tribute creatures are there? Eleven. And are they concentrated in certain colors or distributed? They are the the majority of them are red and green. There's a bunch of red and green, then there's one of white, blue, and black. Yeah. And the white, blue, black ones are all five mana flyers. Well, we need not waste any more time on this mechanic. Yeah. What's the next? What's the, the other new? Mechanic? The other new mechanic is inspired, which is a little bit more interesting from a vintage standpoint, but only slightly. It is a trigger when the creature that has inspired untaps. So it's in the form yeah. of whenever X becomes untapped, do Y. So just to be clear, the tribute mechanic appears to be designed specifically for creatures because it gives plus one, plus one counters. Yep. Other yep. other permanents could theoretically get such counters, but they wouldn't do anything because the non-creature permanents don't have power and toughness. Yep. But inspired is not necessarily something that is strictly applicable to creatures, but in practice here it is, right? Well, uh, you're technically right. A, a land or artifact or even an enchantment could have inspired and it would still function if that permanent became tapped and then untapped. However, I would say from a flavor standpoint, it will almost certainly only be applied to creatures because it it's a it's a reference to said creature being inspired by their gods. And you'd probably be hard-pressed to have an artifact be inspired from a flavor standpoint. What about a statue? Uh, you make a good point. A statue that, when it became untapped, also became inspired to be a creature. It, it could happen. But my, my money's on this only being a creature-based mechanic also. Okay. That, that, that's limiting, but I think I am not so dismissive about the, the mechanic conceptually as I think you are. I think that the idea of untapping is potentially actually quite bountiful. First of all, you know, as long as it is the permanent is in play for more than a turn, it's going to untap. So, I mean, just let's start with something basic. Imagine putting this on a land. I granted it. it <laughs> I heard your explanation thematically. It's not going to be put on land, but you know, a land is difficult and permanent to remove. Not impossible, but difficult. You know, and imagine if there's something just as simple as inspired gain a life, right? So when every turn that, and you could imagine just a basic, you know, not a basic land, but a a, a land that is that is basic, not the the, the card type, <laughs> simple, but, but but simple, you know, just like tap for a green mana and then has inspired gain one life. Now that would be fairly valuable, you know, to every turn you every time you untap that land, you gain a life. Certainly. Um, Although so, I would criticize one thing you said a moment ago and about something being in play going to untap. By virtue of the fact that they've put this mechanic solely on creatures in this set, what you just said is not actually true. Because creatures don't untap by definition. They must first tap. And the primary right. way you do that is attacking. And the right. vast majority of the creatures in this set that have the inspired mechanic are so small that attacking is a dangerous prospect. And you attack with so, one of these creatures and it might not be around to untap next turn. So, so there are two implicit conditions. Yeah. First, you have to have the, the permanent in play during your untap step mm -hmm. in order to get a natural untap. And second, you have to have a way of actually causing it to tap in the first place. A land is something that you could easily tap without cost or consequence, whereas... Mm -hmm. A creature is is probably more difficult to to do so for, because first of all creatures have summoning sickness as you just pointed out and also in general you have to attack in order to tap them so I guess there's uh, uh, basically two parts to getting value out of this one is um, you need to have a reliable way to cause your creature to become tapped <laughs> and then the, the second part is is there an additional way beyond the untap step to actually untap it. And then that sort of circles back to a third implicit question, which is, is there another way to tap it besides naturally attacking? In order to get multiple uses, you need to untap it, then tap it again, and then untap it yet once more, mm -hmm. right? Yep. 
So what what are the basic ways to cause cards to tap or untap in in vintage? Well, given that you have access to the whole card pool, you can you have access to all of the simple repeatable type effects. The best example I think is what they reprinted in this set, which is Springleaf Drum. There are a number of other effects that allow you to tap a creature for some benefit. Another good example is Earthcraft, which allows you to tap a creature you control to untap a basic land. So there are plenty of ways, and that there are just dozens of other examples. Other creatures that tap, creatures that share a, a creature type with them for some benefit, that kind of thing. I think there are a number of synergistic ways that you can tap a creature for benefit in the vintage card pool. Is there any static permanent or... Let me put this continuous permanent artifact yeah. that allows you to iteratively, iteratively tap twiddle something without a mana cost. So maybe a life cost or sacrificing a permanent or something like that. Is there anything like that in the in the, in the entire card pool? I haven't found a good example. There isn't anything that does tap and untap together in the, in, in the same card. Uh, no, I mean repeatable, like tap a creature colon okay. for this effect, untap right. a creature colon for this effect. There's nothing right, that is right. quite that synergistic. Tapping is easy. Things like Earthcraft is just tap a creature, colon, untap a basic land. So the tapping part, and, and there are a number of examples that make tapping easy. But there's no one card that does both halves of that equation. So you're either going to have to have two other effects that do it, or you're just going to have to do one side of that equation and rely on something else, like the natural untap of the turn to provide the next one. Like a query and ranger. Yeah, exactly. Which means that if you want to build an engine, which I think you could definitely build an engine, it's probably going to be a three-card combo in the end. Hmm. I don't think there's any t- real two-card combo outside of maybe a, a inspired creature with, say, a buyback oh. spell. Yeah. But there's no inspired creature that reasonably provides enough mana to play a buyback spell. In- we're, we're abstractly analyzing the mechanic, so let's just you know pretend that we can make this mechanic as is idealistically as you know and perfectly as we, as we would want for vintage play. So without trying to, without looking at very its specific cards with this mechanic, I just want to see what are the potentials for interactions with the mechanic itself. Definitely. In the vintage card pool. You could yeah. definitely put together a number of profitable interactions. It's just a matter of how efficient but they are at that point. Any engines, anything, anything that can be used iteratively. Yeah, and uh, again, I don't think there's any two-card engine that could no. that could be manifest out of control, like infinite resource or infinite one ones. I don't think there's any two-card engine. I think in order to go with an unbounded loop, you end up with a three-card requirement. So there's no card that has basically twiddle on it. Like, what about a card that taps the twiddle? But twiddle isn't an example. I mean, I see why you're using twiddle, but twiddle is not yeah. an example of what we're talking about. Right. You can only do one half of it with one twiddle. That's it's very inefficient. Yep. Chain stasis. Chain stasis is the card I was thinking of. It doesn't have buyback. You would have to have two targets for it. But in theory, you can go infinite with it. It is? Let's see. Read it. Read the text of chain stasis. Tap or untap target creature. Then that creature's controller may pay to you. If that player does, he or she may copy this spell and may choose a new target for that tar- that copy. You don't have to have two c- creatures. You just have to have one. But the act of tapping it or untapping it needs to produce you three mana in order to continue the chain. Right. So it costs four mana just to tap and then untap it. Uh, No, it costs six. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. The first time it costs four, but any iteration thereafter costs six. So there it is. Chain Stasis is the uh, is this only <laughs> iterative combo card with this mechanic. It's easy to tap or untap a creature with any one effect, repeatedly so. It's difficult to do both without, get, without uh, getting to three or more cards. 
there's, yeah. there's a possibility that you could chain together the card chain stasis because that taps or untaps and lets you replicate it. But, but the first iteration of that costs blue, blue, two, and, and every subsequent iteration costs blue, blue, four. There's nothing that's in Born of the Gods that produces that much mana just for its inspired ability. Yeah, you'd have to have a really tremendous effect to justify yeah, that. Yeah, not by itself, I mean. So, Steve, I, I fully take your meaning. This mechanic at the brute level is definitely ripe for interaction, profitable interaction. You could put this on a number of different types of cards, and yeah. with some slight power tweaking, it would be useful. The cards they Just not on... Yeah, the cards <laughs> they put it on in Born of the Gods need not apply to Vintage, though. That said, we do have one card on our list that we want to at least discuss, and that's Painseer. But we're getting ahead All of right. ourselves. How many creatures in the set have inspired? Sixteen. Okay, so it's a pretty it's pretty deep mechanic for the set. And just remind our audience what the other mechanics are in the set. Keyword mechanics. The reused ones from Theros include Scry, Devotion, Heroic, and Bestow. They did not carry over Monstrosity from Theros. And there are others. There are some other non-keyword mechanics like the Enchantment creatures and the legendary gods that have devotion, as well as the temples. So there are some other thematic non-keyword things that have come through as well. It seems odd that they would bring back all the mechanics except one. When I was... Is, is, is as seemingly popular as Monstrosity. <laughs> You're right. Although maybe they didn't know how popular Monstrosity was going to be. But to your point, when I was reading it, I was surprised by how much continuation there was of the Theros mechanics. Steve, you've done a number of set reviews in your time. And to your recollection, when you're thinking of blocks, are the mechanics from the first set in the block normally carried over to that degree? No. This is an aberration. That's what I thought. Seems like there's much more of Theros in Born of the Gods than other block cycles. And unfortunately... That could be a good thing or a bad thing. I was going to say, (laughs) unfortunately, in this case, it's not a good thing for Vintage. Okay, let's dig in. Our first candidate for discussion is one Spirit of the Labyrinth. Spirit of the Labyrinth costs one white enchantment creature spirit. Each player can't draw more than one card each turn, and it is a 3-1. We've seen a lot of hate bears in our time, Steve. This one's not a bear. It's 3-1 instead of 2-2, which means it's pretty aggressively costed. Yeah, this is an impressive creature from a power toughness perspective. Which, in my opinion, only increases its relevance in Vintage. You would definitely prefer to have extra power in Vintage than basically any other alternative. And three power is an interesting threshold due to its relevant interaction with Lodestone Golem. And Jace. And Jace. Good point. And the two mana, as we've discussed before, especially on white creatures, is definitely a playable threshold. There are a number of white creatures, most of them bears in the past, that have seen play, and this one's even more aggressive than most. Yeah, this card automatically falls into the class of creatures that you would call hate bears, although we're now stretching that term, Uh, and I think it falls quite uh, comfortably into the playable category. I would agree. While card drawing itself is not the primary focus of any given vintage deck, there are still a couple of key interactions that this card basically shuts off key tactics that certain decks use that if this card remained in play, some decks would have a very hard time executing their primary strategy. Right. I mean, you can't, you can't gush bond out with this thing in play. Mm-hmm. And less, probably more subtly, you can't use 
the dredge mechanic repeatedly. It, it doesn't stop you from dredging, but it does stop you from abusing dredge with cards like Bizarre Baghdad. I think we need to clarify that one a little bit more because it stops dredge players from doing extra draws outside of dredging, meaning... The, the, the rules manager already answered this question online. I know, and I think there has been a lot of confusion about that answer because this if you dredge every draw in your turn, as dredge decks typically do, this card never actually comes into play. If you dredge every draw in your turn, this card doesn't actually impact that at all because you haven't ever drawn a card. But if you draw one card in a turn as a dredge deck, and then you activate Bazaar of Baghdad, you will not draw or dredge at all anymore, because this will, pre will prevent any subsequent draws after you've drawn one. And that means that you even can't replace your draw with dredge, because you're not allowed to draw in the first place. That was the clarification that Matt Tabak provided, and that's key to know, both on the side of this creature and on the side of dredge going forward. So if your dredge player is activating Bazaar of Baghdad and replacing all their draws with dredges, this card won't stop them from doing so. They'll still be able to dredge three or more times in a turn. As soon as they draw one card, though, you can't do any more drawing or dredging that turn. Yeah. So if you get into a situation, a, a good example of that would be if you land this card and something like, say, Grafdigger's Cage or Rest in Peace, which are likely combinations, and then your dredge player suddenly needs to find answers. They need to dig for a chain of vapor or something similar. At that point, you're going to be hamstringing them a lot because they won't be able to tap Bizarre to look at two more cards. So this does have an effect against dredge in a post-sideboard kind of scenario or after you've gotten over the, the crest of hampering them to begin with. Then it makes it much harder for them to dig out. Yeah, I mean, if they go to activate a, a Bizarre and you, you wipe out their graveyard with a Tormod script or something like that, then they can't draw. <laughs> they draw... They can't draw the second card, but they're going to have to discard three. Oh, yes. In a scenario like that, this could be very devastating. And so I don't want to give our listeners the impression that this is a cure-all against Dredge, because by itself, it has very little impact on them. If you play this on turn one and say go, and they play their Bazaar, you're still going to get killed on turn two or three if you don't do anything else that's relevant. What if you play on turn one? Because they can't, they're going to draw a card on their first turn, and then they're going to play the Bazaar and be unable to use it immediately. Uh, that's right. You will, you will hamper them to the tune of one card on your turn. You're right. Because if you... Um, no, no, you're right. You'll hamper them to the tune of one card on the first turn cycle, but as soon as they get that first dredger in the yard, then they're off to the races. So it is, you're right, it is a minor speed bump if they haven't dredged once yet, but if they were on well, the play and Bazaar's in play when you cast this, then it's basically not a disruption to them at all. Well, if you play that, they're going to have to activate Bazaar on your turn, but they're going to they're going to lose the second draw. That's right. That's right. right. So if they had the dredger in their opening hand, then you haven't really cut them off of much at all. Just a single draw. One, Which cumulative? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's it's just one card for the rest of the game, is it? Because as soon as they get the one dredger in their yard, then they're off to the races again. But we're assuming that you're going to use something else to interact with them. That's that's what I'm trying to get at, is that by itself, this card is a very small in, uh, annoyance to them. Even on the first turn, it's a very small annoyance. But as soon as you couple it with one other thing that disrupts their dredging, like you said, Tormod's Crypt or, or a Cage or a Rest in Peace, then this becomes very hampering if they need to dig for answers, because you've then limited them to one per turn. I think that the, the key point about this creature is that it's useful in a wide range of matchups. Against blue decks, it shuts out, you know, Herc uh, Ancestral Recall, Brainstorm, Ponder, Jace. Preordain, Gush. I against Oath, it stops Bristlebrand in its tracks, which is incredibly important. Uh, because if you have a bunch of tempo threats, you might, you know, you can't necessarily attack into a Bristlebrand, but that doesn't, they can't attack you either. 
So all you need to do is find an answer, and they can't just draw out the combo. Um, against workshops, as you mentioned, it trades with Lodestone Golem. Dredge, with other cards, it's going to be pretty good. Um, it just it seems really good in a wide range of matchups. In the, in the Tempo Mirror, it's a 3-1 body for two. I think the most important point is that it's one we've already made as well. Uh, beyond the fact that it's useful in a, in a wide range of matchups, it's fast. It's a turn one play. And if your blue opponent has a bunch of draw spells in their hand that are efficient and they haven't used them yet, that's that's pretty brutal. Oh, and not to mention it's just awesome against combo. Stops bargain, stops draw sevens. Mm-hmm. The, the, we should know what it doesn't stop, though. It doesn't stop Dark Confidant. It doesn't stop Necropotence, because those don't technically draw. Um, oh, it, it stops uh, Standstill and, uh, and Library. Again, again, relevant. You could trigger Standstill all day. <laughs> it, it may not actually stop Library very effectively. It slows it, let's say that. Because I can alternate drawing my card for the turn and then tap Library on your turn. Sure. But still, that amount of slowness could make the difference, and it's disruptive even in that situation. Right. Could give you more time to Wasteland that Library before it's been activated multiple times, for example. This card may actually give White Weenie or Beats an actual brutal turn one play you know like like those decks have tinker now now those decks have a really good turn one play because if you can drop this on turn one and it resolves a lot of hands are going to go going to be really bad agreed definitely agreed we should also mention the fact that uh how it affects bomberman you can't draw out with the deck with this oh that's a very good point if you're trying to execute bomberman's combo via aether spellbomb for example they're going to be stopped at one iteration per turn interesting so, Steve, we've talked about how well this card applies in slowing multiple dominant strategies in Vintage. Where do you think this card falls short? Well, the weakness of the card is clearly it's one toughness. Um, but that's a weakness that a lot of creatures share, and that doesn't seem to slow them down very much. Dark Confidant has the weakness. Lotus Cobra has a weakness. A Delver of Secrets at first first play has that weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, Snapcaster, Pyromancer, Pyromancer yeah. Snapcaster, Pyromancer. Yeah, I mean, that's its weakness. I don't think that's a big weakness. And the other weakness is that it doesn't actually hit everything that draws, but it hits a lot of important things. This is really brutal against the decks that I like, <laughs> like Combo and Gush. It, it's also weakness. Its other weakness, I guess, would be specific strategic weakness would be against Delver type decks that have a really strong tempo game that use draw but don't rely on draw. So they could, you know, ha- could burn it out fairly quickly. And against a deck like that, if if that deck has, say, Young Pyromancer, Tarmogoyf, uh, Snapcaster, this card is it's aggressive, but actually is going to just die in combat a lot of times if you try to swing in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's, but it does stop things like Preordain, which are useful to find, you know, those answers. You might find that... That's an interesting observation. If you're playing a deck like Green-White Beats, for example, just one hypothetical home for this, against something like Rogue Delver, you might find that landing this card puts you firmly in the control role in that matchup. Yes. There are many yes. hands that we've analyzed in the past from Rug Delver that include a, a, a Preordain and a Snapcaster and a Gush, and you might get a lot of virtual card advantage in a matchup like that against a deck that's designed to have more virtual card advantage just in its light land count and its cantrips. Yeah, exactly. A Preordain is, is a sorcerer. Yeah, Preordains <laughs> are terrible with, with this card out. <laughs> and the other thing is, and, and we'll spend another podcast in the future talking about Gush, but one thing about Gush is you really want to play Gush on your turn, even though it's an instant. So that you maximize the additional land drop. Mm-hmm. Here, this this compels you to play Gush on your opponent's turn, so you can get one draw out of it. So it replaces itself. So this card is this card is a real. I think the, the hidden value of this card is the tempo play. 
you know, not only are you going to be able to sh have, uh, you know, these shifting roles like you just described, but I think the tempo value of this card is really tremendous. It's three power interacts with the way it can just shut out certain hands. You know, a, a really broken hand that a blue player might have that has, I, well, I don't know, something like, let's say, Ancestral Recall and a bunch in like a Snapcaster Mage and Snap and Ancestral Recall or, or hell, Lotus Jace. Yeah. How good is Lotus Jace against this on the draw against this on turn one? Yeah, you've definitely narrowed their Jace options at least to the least exciting options, either bouncing this or plussing Jace so that it'll live through combat such that they can find another answer. So what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah, and that's a tempo play, as, it, as you put. Uh, yes. So this card is really, I think, really impressive. And I think its value is going to be generally underrated at the outset. Uh, one, another thing I like about it, too, is it, it goes in a lot of contexts. It could go in mono white or green white. It could go in a new newish type deck that had this and dark confidant in order to skirt this drawback as oh. a, like a wizard style deck, for example. And it could even be a sideboard card. Heck, this could be a sideboard card against certain key strategies like Gush, like Oath for Gristlebrand. Yeah. If yep. you felt like it, you could just use this as though it were Chains of Mephistopheles that also provides a clock. Yep. And I think some players yeah, I mean, might Jace, do that. And Jace is one of the most menacing cards in the format, and it can only be used as a sorcery. So it this shut down Jace. Yeah. So Jace, Jace answer. And that cannot be underestimated at all. Players were definitely playing Notion Thief thanks to its interactions along these same lines, and this card costs half as much and has the same power and toughness. Yeah, Burning Tendrils is pretty much shut down by this card unless it gets like a Necropotence. I still think you'll be able to fly over with Gristlebrand for the win in some sure. in some games that feature this card. But you're right in that I could very easily picture a deck that plays this card fielding far more than seven power worth of creatures in the early game, such that your Gristlebrand can't actually win the race. Yeah, and that's definitely a, a possibility. Well, what else do you want to cover on Spirit of the Labyrinth? I think we should move forward. Sure, let's, let's, let's make our predictions. I find that it's it's very tricky to predict this card because of the vast number of contexts in which it could be used. It could be a four of in a number of different creature-based decks. It could be a two or three of in a sideboard for the anti-control or anti-combo disruptive elements we just mentioned. And it could forge its own new archetype. Such an archetype wouldn't look dramatically different from modern, say, noble fish or, or humans, but it could be a new deck. So, boy... I believe that players are going to try this out, and I believe that several players are probably going to make top eights with it in their deck. Something new and something old from an archetype standpoint. So, boy, I don't think this is going to be quite as surprising as a, as one Deathrite Shaman, for example. But I'm, right. I'm going to say I'm going to say eight appearances. Yeah, I think I'm in the same range as you. Um, what are some creatures that would be in a home with home with this? Where would this appear? It would appear almost certainly alongside Thalia, yeah. possibly possibly Leon uh, Arbiter, possibly Gadok Teague, and if you're going green, then almost certainly Noble Hierarch. I mean, most of the creatures that are in Noble Fish play nicely with this in one way or another. Yeah, and this this is this is nicely at home in, like, in a white trash deck or any any beat deck with white. Just reinforces white centrality to that archetype. Definitely. Now those. White-based beat beats decks or green-white hate bears don't put up good numbers in Vintage, but they're always yeah. sort of there on the periphery, and they can definitely catch unprepared opponents aware. The recent popularity yeah. of Oath means that those decks have an uphill climb, but they can be very hateful toward Oath. this is an answer to yeah. They can be very hateful toward Oath. They can have fully 12 or 16 creatures in the main that are 
highly disruptive toward Oath. Including this. Including this, yeah. I'm going to take the under, but just barely. I'm going to say, I think there's going to be six decks with this in the top eight. Reasonable. Very reasonable. But you, you could very well be right. I mean, this is this is a really good card. And I believe that, similar to our Swan Song observations, the appearances and success of this card will probably be closely tied toward the the next few shifts in the metagame. Metagame, yeah. This card has to watch out, and at least it has to be built in a deck that is very cognizant of Oath. And so I think the popularity of Oath these days is going to heavily influence any deck that this appears in, and then yeah. that will have other repercussions in terms of how it's developed alongside things like workshop decks, which are always constantly evolving. I think we should move on. Talk about Pain Seer. Now, I alluded to this earlier in our inspired section. Pain Seer costs one black creature human wizard. Inspired, when Pain Seer becomes untapped, reveal the top card of your library and put that card into your hand. You lose life equal to that card's converted mana cost. Two, two. Pretty clearly, this is yet another attempt to recreate Dark Confidant. We covered recently Blood Scrivener, and I have a feeling that a lot of the things we would say about Blood Scrivener did say about Blood Scrivener. Find our audience what Blood Scrivener does again. (laughs) Well, Blood Scrivener is the basically the black bear that um, if you have it in play and you go to draw a card with no cards in your hand, then you draw an extra card and lose a life. So if you would draw a card while you have no cards in your hand, you draw two and lose a life. And we talked about a number of ways in which you could abuse Blood Scrivener and turn it into a multiple card advantage. But what we concluded was that it was risky to do so because it involved an empty hand and also frequently involved weak engine cards that were bad by themselves if you didn't have the Blood Scrivener going. And it was basically ultimately not worth the effort, and we were vindicated. There were no Blood Scrivener results. So the only way that this creature is better than Dark Confidant is basically the same metric as with Blood Scrivener, if you can use it multiple times a turn. Yeah. Um, And there has to be a reasonable way to tap this thing in order to get an immediate usage out of it. Um, And you can't do that by attacking unless you have something like... What's that Legends enchantment that gives creatures haste? Concordant Crossroads? (laughs) (laughs) There are several cards that will give your creatures haste for a reasonable cost, like Lightning Greaves or, well, a number of terrible creature enchantments that you wouldn't play over Lightning Greaves. Yeah, Lightning Greaves is too expensive. Lightning Greaves sees play in workshop decks occasionally, but to make Painseer work, no, there's no way... So you need like a cord and crossroads in play, and that's just to 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 get this to untap in the first instance. Well, and never mind uh, that all you've done is successfully got it into combat in an environment right. that's filled with other plenty of similarly sized creatures. Right, that doesn't even get to the untap step. Definitely. So, I mean, it's pretty clearly worse than Dark Confidant, and unless there are cards in the card pool that we missed in our canvassing of the mechanic that it can allow you to untap it and then tap it efficiently, it's hard to see where this, this would see play. As we discussed with Inspired, you could construct an engine that really abused this and gave you multiple quote-unquote draws. That engine and engines like it basically are not good enough in Vintage these days because the card pool and the tempo of the environment is so punishing. Yeah, I mean, but even aside, even aside from sort of how efficient the, in the counter magic or, or removal is in the format, the bigger problem is there's just no efficient way to unta- to tap and untap a card. Yeah. Chain Stasis is not efficient at seven <laughs> mana. Definitely not. <laughs> you could spring leaf drum this creature, and many people will, at least in limited, uh, the turn it comes out, and that would effectively make it into a dark confidant of sorts because you'd be getting that effect every turn in theory. 
but in doing so, you would also be denying yourself the attack. While Dark Confidant does not get through most of the creatures in Vintage, it still has that possibility. It does still pressure a Jace every once in a while and, and provide a path to victory in some games. This creature, if you're tapping it to a Springleaf Drum each turn, isn't even doing that much. Yeah. Yes, I don't think that this creature being as close to Bob as it is is enough to redeem the inspired mechanic in Vintage. This would be difficult even if it said, you know, draw two cards or reveal two cards. It would be difficult to abuse. Still wouldn't be as good as Bob, I don't think. Wouldn't it be interesting if instead of drawing the one extra card as you just put it, you got the Knight's Whisper effect? Draw two, lose one life. Almost certainly too powerful for standard, which is why they didn't print it that way. But that would create a more interesting reward for Vintage. Mm-hmm. Still, Knight's Whisper itself barely sees play, and that happens immediately with much less fuss. <laughs> In fact, it may be that comparing cards like this to Knight's Whisper is more appropriate. <laughs> if you have to do a whole bunch of work just to draw the two cards, why not just draw the two cards right now and save yourself all the other terrible cards in your deck like Springleaf Drum? Yep. At any rate, it's pretty clear that you and I are both predicting zero copies. Yep. Let's talk about one that's a little bit more interesting, in my opinion, and that is one Kiora the Crashing Wave. Now, Kiora... We pretty much have to always talk about Blue Planeswalkers. <laughs> That's probably a requirement of this show in the long term. And she costs only four mana. So right there, she's doing pretty well. Kiora is two green-blue Planeswalker Kiora. Plus one until your next turn. Prevent all damage that would be dealt to and dealt by target permanent and opponent controls. Minus one, draw a card. You may play an extra land this turn. Minus five, you get an emblem with, at the beginning of your end step, put a 9-9 blue kraken creature token onto the battlefield, starting loyalty of two. That two is a pretty disappointing number. (laughs) Let's start right there. Jace the Mind Sculptor, for effectively the same mana cost, ignoring the green, of course, comes into play with three, and Jace's plus one ability is relevant, frequently used in Vintage, for the, the moderate effect of the Fate Seal, but also, very importantly, to get Jace up to four loyalty, thereby living through Lightning Bolt and a number of other things. It may be a deal-breaker for Kiora right off the bat in Vintage that the most loyalty she can have when she comes down is three. Lightning Bolt is omnipresent, for its function against Jace and a number of things. And just playing Kiora and preventing the damage to and by a permanent your opponent controls and then getting her bolted is just so disappointing and far worse than Jace. <clears throat> but that having been said, assuming Kiora lives for a turn or more, she does prevent damage from attackers, so she does protect herself with her plus ability, which is something that is of an advantage over Jace. And she does produce incremental card advantage with her minus ability, drawing a card, play additional land. So there's plus one card there, not nearly as good as Jace's Brainstorm, but it's still a card advantage. And then her ultimate, which we really shouldn't consider too much, is a game ender of a sort. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's no guarantee. Just like Jace's so ultimate is no guarantee. Emblems are just tokens, but they can't be... What, is there anything particular about them? I'm sorry, say again? What is an emblem, again? An emblem is a... <laughs> Is it a glorified token? It's it's a glorified token, but it's not on the battlefield. It goes into the command zone and can't be interacted with with any card that's currently in print. So you get an emblem, and then you can... At the beginning of your end step, you get a 9-9 blue Kraken creature token every turn. Every turn? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. The emblem has a trigger that gives you an, a 9-9 every turn. Okay, well, that's not clear from the card. You have to know what an emblem is to know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, yes, that's that... correct. You do have to know what an emblem is. 
Um, yeah, I don't think that. The, the ultimate is... The ultimate's not, never really the point of a Planeswalker anyway, especially not in Vintage. Yeah. So we're talking about plus one and minus one here. You can play Kiora and plus one her to to basically put on lockdown a creature that your opponent has. And in right. many games of Vintage, that will be good enough to really slow them. If you're playing against Bob Jace and they have just Bob out, you've effectively nullified Bob and protected Kiora from combat. And against many other kinds of decks, they may only have one or two creatures out. If they have two, sometimes the other one is a, a Noble Hierarch or a dark, I'm sorry, a uh, Deathrite Shaman that's not capable of dealing a lot of damage. So I think this first ability is sufficiently protective in a lot of contexts in Vintage, though not all. Yeah, that it'll allow it to survive the next turn. Ironically, yeah. it's better in Vintage at the high end than at the low end. It's better against your Blightsteel Colossus or your uh, yeah. or your uh, Gristlebrand. Than, say, a Pyromancer. Yes. Yeah. I think this card is so difficult to analyze that it really forces us to confront what the metrics or standards are for playability and unplayability. Um, so I think we should be clear on what we mean by some of those things. Sure. When I, there is a difference between evaluating whether a card is playable when it is already legal in the card pool and between when a card has a Viet is not legal in the card pool. <laughs> so, and, and that's a subtle distinction. A card is defined as playable as if it is capable of putting up top eight appearances. And that's an empirical question when a card is legal. If a card does not put up appearances in top eights, it is categorically or by definition not played and therefore unplayable. <laughs> <laughs> Evaluating a card's playability before it is legal is a, not an empirical question. It's an a priori question before a card is legal. So this is really a, an epistemological question, like how do you know something, right? <laughs> there are two ways of knowing something, epistemology, right? You can learn know through logic, read that is reason, or you can know through uh, observation, as empiricism. The, the way we know the cards are unplayable a priori is if you can identify a card that is superior to it, strictly superior or generally vastly superior, and doesn't see play. And what gets people tripped up is they look at cards that are inferior to cards that are already played and therefore conclude a card is not playable. But that actually does not follow as a matter of logic. Agreed. And the reason it doesn't follow is because you can play 60 cards in a deck. So if we were to look at this card and say, okay, this card is not as good as Jace, therefore it won't see play, that doesn't actually follow as a matter of a priori logic. You'd have to find a card that is that is better than this that does not see play in order to conclude that it will not see play. Um, and to be completely frank, Jace is just the best the best Planeswalker, period. Uh, <laughs> it's better than Tezzeret, and Tezzeret the Seeker sees play. It, it doesn't see play. Tezzeret the Seeker does not see play because it's better than Jace. It sees play because A, supplements Jace, or B, in some strategies, has more synergies than Jace. Or, D, <laughs> it actually sees play because Jace is so targeted that people are unprepared to deal with Tezzeret, even though Tezzeret is not as good of a card. Um, and so... It's a mistake to simply say this card won't see play because it's not Jace. There are tons of cards in Vintage that are unrestricted that aren't as good as other cards that are unrestricted and still see play. Mm -hmm. So Misdirection is no force of will, even though it is situationally better at, in very small corner cases or marginal cases, and yet it sees play. Uh, there are lots of other examples like that. Um, you know, you could quibble about. The extent to which, you know, there are a few cards that are strictly superior, but there are often cards that are much better. So Sphere of Resistance is just a better card than Thorn of Amethyst, even in mud decks generally, because whatever. But Thorn still sees plenty of play. Um, 
I think what's tricky about this card is that it falls into the big middle category of cards that you can't really rule as playable or unplayable. And it's especially so because, and we talked about this, when evaluating cards, one thing that we look for is either novel effects or novel combination of effects. And this middle ability really slips the cognitive into, into a cognitive gap <laughs> because people focus on the, you know, okay, it draws one card at a minus one ability, and you get some mana advantage out of it. But what we've noticed, what we've noted, noted many times before, is that when you combine things into a single ability, that's a totally different value proposition than simply being additive, right? So the value of minus one loyalty here is not simply drawing a card plus playing additional land. It's actually greater than the sum of its parts. That's why that's why we a lot of times we value charms more than the sum of their parts, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a very tricky thing to evaluate. Here's where I approach this card. I agree with you. I think the first ability is fine. I think the second ability is potentially tremendous. And the the place that I, I really get excited about this is in a gush deck. And I especially get excited in a gush deck with Lotus Cobra. Um, and that's a place where this additional land drop can really have tremendous value. So if you have one Lotus Cobra in, in play and you play a regular dual land, you get to replay a land. So let's say you have a Lotus Cobra on turn one and you play a fetch land and then you get to play Kiora on turn two. You can now play a land that you can have either have in hand or return with Gush, whatever, and you get automatically two mana out of that. If you play a fetch land, that's three mana out of that. That's usually enough to do something of value. Or if you have two Lotus Cobras in play and you play a fetch land, you get five mana out of that, <laughs> out of a fetch land immediately. The opening you just described could be just devastating. Turn one Lotus Cobra, turn two Kiora, which is a totally reasonable play out of any Lotus Cobra deck. But then you're right. That additional land drop with a fetch means you could play another meaningful sorcery like Preordain on your main phase and still have mana two mana available on your opponent's turn to play right, a counterspell could, or some other reactive card. Or you could play Preordain another Cobra. Yep. And then you're going to untap and you'll have a, just a ridiculous amount of mana and you'll be getting generating card advantage at the same time. Yes, the the presence of simple synergy between two cards like Lotus Cobra and Gush that have already proved themselves in Vintage makes this effect pretty tempting. Yes. And the fact that it's repeatable means it's much more reliable than something that has never seen play in Vintage like an Explore. Right, right. You know, um, the other dimension to this that um, is difficult is people don't tend to sort of encode and value mana advantage highly you know the things are salient are card advantage the mana advantage i mean yeah explore doesn't see play but getting additional land drop can have real value especially with gush because gush returns two lands to hand one of which you want to play immediately but if you can play the second land then you're getting maximal value from the gush one of the reasons that gush into jason this is a little bit pedantic is so valuable is because you turn the, you turn you get maximal card advantage. Gush into a brainstorm effect turns all of the cards that you just drew with brainstorm into full value. You get to keep them all. Mm-hmm. But if instead of brainstorming, you get to play, you get to draw a card and then play the land that you just played with Gush for your land drop for the turn, and then the additional land, and you get another card. I mean, gush into this is could potentially mean draw three cards this turn and play two lands, which essentially allows you to play both of the cards you played with gush and get maximal card advantage. And in a gush deck that has high le- high quotient of virtual card advantage because of a low mana base, you'll be getting maximal mana advantage out of it and card advantage simultaneously. So it's I think 
almost equivalent to the Jace brainstorm activation in a in a well-designed gush deck. So what I'm saying is this could supplement this could be supplement Jace in a gush deck. You could imagine now with this card a Cobra gush a Cobra gush deck that has I don't know three or four Jaces and multiples of this. I agree. That seems to be the logical starting point for integrating this into the vintage deck building. And I also agree that it provides not necessarily an unprecedented effect, but a unique combination. Novel and suspicious, yeah. but it's novel and combination. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a value that we just cannot evaluate. And also... That's a property we can't evaluate. Yeah. It's worth noting that Jace's time frame to become a lethal effect is not as fast as Kiora. And now, in a, in a vintage Gush deck, you may be saying, well, you're just going to kill them with Gushing, right? Yes, but to put it a different way, if you land Jace and I land Kiora and all other yeah. things being equal, I Kiora wins first. Yes. And that kind of metric is also definitely worth taking into account when you're evaluating which card to choose for vintage deck construction. Spell out that sequence for our listeners. Well, the simple point is, is that Jace has a quote-unquote lethal um ultimate and and the fate seal i mean the fate seal is a useful ability and you would use it and you do use it to plus him and it reaches ultimate kiora's plus is similar you you use it and you can keep her alive and and you use it to reach her ultimate but jace's ultimate is what 13 jace's ultimate is minus 12 and he starts at three but he goes up by twos so five seven nine eleven thirteen that's why I was thinking of 13. You have to get to 13 to minus 12. It takes five turns. Kiora comes play into play, and when she does, she immediately goes to three. That's turn one. So three, four, five, ultimate. She's ultimate a turn earlier than Jace is. And then that same turn, she goes ultimate, you get a, your first 9-9. Nine, nine. And in theory, you win the game two turns later than that. All things being equal in vintage, you can count on your opponent being at 18 life. So, and... To put it a different way, Kiora matches up against Jace quite well because she can produce those 9-9s, nine which the, the unsummoned plan is the only way Jace gets to survive that, again, by himself. So I, I think it's worth comparing those two against each other. That is not how most vintage games featuring a Planeswalker play out, granted. But it means that in certain situations, you may find yourself at the advantage against a, an opponent who chose a different Planeswalker. And it all sort of contributes in the way that you're talking about. Maybe yeah, Jace is, is the better card in the abstract, Right. But there are certain scenarios in which Kiora will be superior. And people, the same, you could just take that sentence or that statement and replace Tezzeret with Kiora there, and that explains why people play Tezzeret. Tezzeret 1.0 and Tezzeret 2.0. Right, right. That is, but yeah, I think um, you know th- this this satisfies the basic metrics. You know, it's a it's blue, it's forecasting costs, and generates card advantage. Um, when people are overly focused on its inferiority to Jace, they miss why Tezzeret sees play at all. The, the, the other thing is that, um, you know, I'm not claiming this is a Tezzeret, but it's not just, you know, there, let me give you another example of cards that are inferior. When uh, when Brainstorm was unrestricted, people played Four Ponder, <laughs> you know? And people play, frankly, Preordain is not as good as Ponder. There are some scenarios in which a Preordain is better than Ponder, but Ponder is generally a better card. Uh, it basically, if, if you consider the, the possibilities of your top three cards, the only case in which Preordain is basically possibly better and ponder is if one of the one of the cards you only want one of the cards and the other two cards suck <laughs> then preordain is slightly better but that means your deck probably isn't that great <laughs> or you've got a lot of, or you're playing a lot of like weird single well cards. the classic example is oath 
if graceful brands on top of your deck you want to preordain yes exactly that's my point yeah. but but in general ponder is a better card and yet you know brainstorm is not as good as ancestral seed play Ponder's not as good as is brainstorm sees play. Preordain's not as good as any of them. It sees play, <laughs> and and you know cards being inferior or generally inferior or not does not eliminate them from seeing play. There's also a real point that that marginal value. There's diminishing returns, right? It's an economic principle that applies to the third, fourth, second, third, fourth, and, and third and fourth a copy of a card in a, in a deck. Every workshop player knows the how bad it sucks to draw the uh, you know. The, the, the third crucible of worlds. Right. <laughs> Hell, the, the third trinosphere. <laughs> um, for those of you who are old school players. Um, the second trinosphere actually is the one that sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It has a marginal value that's quite low. Um, you know, I could definitely see this being of equal value to the fourth Jace in a situation. You know, um, would you rather, if you're Jacing, Jace storming, would you rather see this or another Jace? You know? Yeah. Uh, we may be on the precipice of a new deck in vintage, a Gush Cobra deck that really is basically be called Planeswalker Gush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could, you know? I could see as many as five or six Planeswalkers in that deck. If not more. Yep. I mean, Cobra permits you to play... I mean, think of, again, one Cobra in play, if you play this on turn two and you're able to play a Fetchland and a Mox, you can play a Jace right there on turn two. That's two Planeswalkers on turn two. That's wild. That is a crazy concept to think about that. Turn one Cobra and your opponent's like, all right, I can heal with this. And on turn two, you end with Kiora and Jason play. <laughs> And your hand would be full, almost. Imagine, yeah. Think about that sequence, too. Your hand would be almost full after having done that. Right. That's that's impressive. That's quite impressive. I did want to, you know, there was someone on the Mandarin who made some comments I think are worth responding to um, that, that I think sort of hone in on the debate that yeah, this card did generate some debate. I just, a lot of people on the Mandarin said that they thought this card was strictly, basically unplayable, and the main argument was that it's just inferior to Jace. And I said that that does not render a card unplayable. Someone here said, okay, except that Jace generates chunks of card quality and card advantage simultaneously over the long run. Um, what, uh, that's true. It, Jace is a recursive card, but that doesn't make, mean this card can't be iterative either. You just have to alternate its abilities. Um, also, Card quality and card advantage, um, virtual card quality is basically a form of card advantage. That's called virtual card advantage. Um, this card generates mana advantage, and that is something that is really easy un to underestimate. But if you could, I mean, just imagine, you know, if you have again, if you have two cobras in play, this every land drop you have is a is dark ritual at a baseline. <laughs> you know, yeah. so just imagine, for example, let's just replace the text. What if this said, draw a card, add three blue to your mana pool? Yeah, people would evaluate it pretty differently in that context. Very differently. Or even what if it what if it just said, I mean, just imagine, listeners, just imagine, what if it just said, minus one, loyalty, draw a card, add two mana of any color to your mana pool, any combination? How would you evaluate this card then? You know, again, we're getting to the point of how this would how this synergizes with Cobra. Um and again, I, I think that we have to remember the, the the one of the reasons that Gush is so good with Jace is because it turns those two lands into immediate value. Here, this also turns those lands into immediate value. You get to replay them immediately. Um, there's, so this card, you know, anyway, I, I think that the, the, that narrow focus really loses sight of that. Um, and this, then just, this person then says, Brainstorm has proven to be more valuable in a vacuum, taking into consideration individual vintage card power than Explorer even Time Walk. 
I really have to take exception to that statement. Brainstorm is more valuable in a vacuum than time walk. <laughs> is there a more valuable thing in a vacuum than taking additional turns? <laughs> brainstorm is proven more valuable. If, I thought that the, the primary lesson of vintage history is that Brainstorm is not powerful in a vacuum. That if we look pre-onslaught, Brainstorm was played, if at all, as a very, very marginal card. It appeared, basically the only place Brainstorm ever appeared was in combo decks, is, a, is like draw seven decks, you know, like combo burning tendrils type decks. It was not played as a format staple until the fetch lands were printed. And the exception, of course, being Grow, which had four land grants. <laughs> um, so I, I think that the value of Brainstorm is just as contextual as any of those other cards, but Time Walk is frankly a far more valuable effect in a vacuum in any, in any context. <laughs> Anyway, I, I won't deconstruct a lot more of this, but I think a lot of the analysis of Kiora has been fairly flawed. Um, and the emphasis on card advantage and card quality that Jace provides completely ignores the fact that this generates card advantage and mana advantage, which is undervalued. It occurred to me as you were describing some sequences and that, and that mana advantage that I fully expect if a deck featuring the kind of interactions that we've just laid out sees play that the following sequence will occur more often than you might expect and that is turn one lotus cobra turn two kiora minus one kiora for the explore play the land get the get the mana possibly play another spell past the turn but then on turn three you're going to see people activate kiora again for the explore putting her into the graveyard get the card get the mana play a fetch land and play another kiora and explore again her, wow. her low her low loyalty if the primary abuse of her is the explore effect is actually an advantage because in vintage you while i would welcome exploring three and four and five turns in a row realistically you're not going to have that if you get cure out and you've explored with her twice you are off to the races and so the fact that she goes after the second one actually means drawing incremental Kioras is good starting on the second turn she's in play. That's interesting. You, that get, makes you her can explore. get three explorers over two turns with her. That's fascinating. Yeah, and if again, if you have Cobras in play, that can be explosive amounts of mana. And you're not, it's not just, it's not just trading mana for additional mana generation. You're also drawing cards in the process. So you're, you're cycling through cards as you do all this. It could be that Kiora is a, maybe not a four of, but a regular member of the Gushbond engine heretofore. Yes. Yeah. And and that's all Gush, but what, I mean, the other thing, the piece we're not missing, that we're missing from this, and the limitation on Gush is lands in play. If you can have play three additional lands, you know, by turn three. Oh, that that means you can gush more. That's a good point. On in the hypothetical we're talking about, turn one Cobra, turn two Kiora. You have two lands in play when you announce Kiora. You put her into play. You activate her Explorer. You have three lands in play. You can gush once on that turn, but now you're limited. You've only got one land left in play. You're not going to be able to gush again. All things being equal, no, you can gush immediately again on turn two. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And then on turn, as soon as you get to turn three, the second turn that Kiora is in play without fast bond, which is obviously a you can play two more gushes. You can play two more gushes if you do your yeah. Kiora Kiora. And and that the way you mentioned it, Steve, that's a good point. That's that's huge. You can chain together Kioras into multiple gushes in a way that you would have been prevented from before. There have been lots of scenarios, and I'm sure you've seen it, and I'm sure you've written about it, that you you don't want to gush on two because all things being equal, you don't get to replay the land. You don't get the mana benefits as you've listed 
thousands of times before. But also, when you gush on three and you get great benefit out of it, drawing extra gushes right then is kind of awful. Right, right. And Kiora can help mitigate that problem. It puts them immediately, it makes them immediately active, but then it also means you're not holding a bunch of lands in play in your hand because you get to replay them again. <laughs> Next turn. So she, in addition addition to giving a little bit of card advantage via draw a card, she is also giving you all kinds of virtual card advantage. Virtual card advantage and turning on the gushes, which are, which again are card advantage. And the lands. And the lands. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm saying is that it's virtual card advantage is actually much more comparable to Jace than is superficially apparent. Yeah. Apparent. Because once you can deconstruct how that virtual card advantage expresses itself with Jace, you see that it's actually quite similar here. It just, instead of putting them into your deck, you put them directly into play. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in constructing this and giving it a try. I, I think it has great potential. I mean, and again, I think you could start with, with four Cobra, four Kiora, four Jace, and see where that takes you. <laughs> yeah, you're a little more gung-ho about the eight Planeswalkers than I am. But from a testing standpoint, it's a good way to get a feel for the interactions. Those are, I mean, but, the, but you know, um, when I last played Cobra, I played it with four Jace, Bargain, and Necropotence. So yeah, I see your why, point there. Why, why not? I see right? your point. I, mean, I see your point. I, I predict, though, that you're going to land somewhere around five or six Planeswalkers. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Still, I think that's a valid point. And I think that you can view Kiora as a really kind of hybrid card a hybrid sorcery planeswalker card that if you want to get multiple uses out of her in certain game states, you definitely can. But if you treat her as like an explorer with another suspended explorer, it still works very well that way too. Even if you take Cobra out of the equation, the synergy with Gush is still very strong. Yes. Just being able to do the old turn three, I'll Gush, Kiora, you get to replay, you know, the land with Gush in order to play the Kiora. And, but then you then you replay the next land, so you have counter magic up. Yeah, your deck is almost certainly going to be structured to abuse that extra one mana in that scenario. Yeah. Agreed. This is fascinating. I'm actually more excited about this card now than when I had analyzed it on my own. And I knew you'd be excited about it for these various reasons, but it's more so the virtual card advantage and all the synergy that I hadn't fully noodled out that I'm... That's pretty interesting. I think it's prediction time. I went first on Spirit of the Labyrinth, and we were both going to give a goose egg to Pain Seer to begin with. So let's, let's. Why don't you go first on this one? Well, you know, I think there's tremendous potential there. Um, I may well give it a spin in the Cobra deck. Right now, I'm having a lot of fun playing Delver. <laughs> uh, so um, I'll just. Uh, I, I, we have till May, right? For <laughs> the next. Yeah, I'll, I'll say at least two, two top eights. Interesting. I feel I feel like I'm taking the over on that. Not too much, but I don't know. I think that between you and I, we're probably good for one or two between the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I know of several people in our listening audience that are probably interested in a similar way. So I feel like I'm going to take the over, and not just the one over either. I'm going to go. I'm going to go four. I know it's not. I, like it. I know it's not much of an over, but I'm feeling more than two. I like it. Well, Steve, what other Born of the Gods cards do we have to review? I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, we reached out on Twitter for people's ideas, and the ideas ranged from talk about Spirit of the Labyrinth and then stop, (laughs) to here are several cards that are interesting, but I don't think we need to do another Theros where we talk about why all these bad cards aren't going to see play. That's pretty much it for Born of the Gods. As we addressed in our mechanical review, they reused a lot of things, both literally and 
figuratively for Born of the Gods, and unfortunately, pretty much none of it translates into vintage viability. Hmm. Steve, you've reviewed a lot of sets in your time. How does this set make you feel as you peruse the spoiler as a whole? It feels like Theros 2.0 to me. I was just going to say the exact same thing. I would... <laughs> What I was exactly going to say was it's it's of a piece with its prede- predecessor. Um, it's mechanically similar, uh, efficiency similar, thematically similar. Being wedded so deeply to creature-based mechanics is a is a huge drawback. Um, but we have some uh, we have some cards that are worth discussing, and I think were interesting even if they see play or not. And I think that's also true of Theros. You know, Swan Song is, is a really interesting card. Um, and so I'm not I'm not quite as down on this set as everyone else, but I, I do think that I expect better in general. That is a, that is to say that there are specific circumstances that converge here or conspire to make this to to sort of render these sets less relevant for vintage. But I don't think they're sort of endemic to design or top down design. I mean, Innistrad proved that to be not true. That statement false. I just think that. They're specific to this set, and I, I anticipate that we'll see slightly more interesting vintage sets moving forward. I saved this question intentionally for after we discussed our cards. How do you feel about Spirit of the Labyrinth's place in this set? It feels to me, given everything you just said in my own observations, it doesn't fit in this set at all. There's no reason for well, this card to exist in Born of the Gods. <laughs> well, doesn't it remind you a little bit of sort of like rest in peace? You know, a standout and otherwise mediocre set? Yeah, but I'm talking about from a design standpoint, why is the card even in this set? Rest in peace at least had some interaction with the graveyard mechanics of uh, Ravnica block. Yeah. Isn't this dealing with some specific problem in other, in, in like standard or something? Isn't this a design solution to some problem? No. That's, that's my expectation. I don't know enough about standard to assess that, but well, that's, that's to put, my suspicion. To put it simply, yeah, to put it simply, I would say no. This feels to me like an eternal plant. Oh. This is not a. This is not something about standard that needs to be answered. Standard is not currently about drawing a ton of cards such that it's a problem. Underworld Connections is seeing some play, but it's not. It's not dominating the format. This is not an answer okay. to anything in standard that I know of, and I've watched a little bit of coverage lately. It's. It's. I don't think this is solving a particular problem. I feel as though Spirit of the Labyrinth, they made it an enchantment creature just because because they could, but there's nothing mechanically about it that says it should be an enchantment creature. It is a spirit, but that's happened millions of times before without being an enchantment. And the fact that it's 3-1 also doesn't make much sense. It's a ghost that stops you from well, drawing, and it's really offensive. They needed something from the set that could be eternal playable, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. It feels like this is just a straight-up eternal plant. This card has, stands out, has very little to do with the feeling or the goals of this block, even. And they just threw us a bone, I think. I think they wanted something that Legacy and, to a minor extent, Vintage players would want to talk about. Well, they succeeded. That's That's true. That's true, and once again, two sets in a row, we've predicted two cards will see play, and I bet that those two cards will see play. We only had one of them come out to be true in Theros, so we'll see. Yeah. We obviously want to hear from our listeners what Born of the Gods card do you think will see the most play in Vintage. According to our estimation, you have two choices, but if there's something we missed, we definitely want you to tell us. We got a lot of listener feedback on our last episode on tactics. I think moving forward, 
well, first of all, people really appreciated the, 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 the focus, and I think people really enjoyed it. But I think we actually, despite our best efforts, we were, we were a little bit too compact in our analysis that really each of those topics, I think, deserved or was at least worthy of more discussion. So what we'll do is we'll just make that, that a recurring segment, or if not, you know, try and unpack that a little bit more. Um, you know, as I was listening to the to the, the program again, um, I was thinking of a lot more things that we didn't mention. Kevin, did you probably have a similar experience? Oh yes, uh, especially on the lands. Man, we could have gone on for ages with the lands. <laughs> um, and we got a lot of great feedback on potential tactics to 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 do moving forward. So we will spend some time uh, in the near future recording some podcasts on different kinds of tactics and. And we also encourage folks to submit scenarios. We will try and make scenarios a recurring segment, if not tactics as well. Yeah, I think it would be a good addition to the show in general to do that. And the scenarios and the tactics both drive pretty neat discussions in the forums and such. Yeah, that really does open up um, a, a continuing dialogue. Thanks again for listening to episode 33 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We did not game.